I like to start the evening with gratitude because I know that's what's on all of our minds and our hearts at the beginning of a time like this that we spend together. So first, gratitude to all of the IMS staff, all of the people that you see and all of the people that we don't see behind the scenes that have warmly welcomed us here, made it possible for us to all be in our places and to eat so that we can practice and um, to keep ourselves in some uh, kind of arrangement where we feel comfortable and we can open to the Dharma. My name is Kamala Masters, and I'm one of the teachers for this retreat. I've been here for maybe the past 13 or 14 retreats of the three-month course, and uh, it's always wonderful to be here at this time. We're a little early this year. We're usually here later in the year, so it's great for us to see the beautiful colors, and uh, it's one of the beautiful things about change that happens. Most of, the, most of the time when there's change, it's difficult. But here when there's change in the uh, leaves turning their different colors, it's quite beautiful and adds a balance to what we go through in the difficult part of this retreat where there's a lot of uh, challenge because of the change from the first to the second half of the retreat. So before I introduce the rest of the group here, I want to uh, secondly give gratitude to all of you who have been here already, establishing the container of the retreat and um, hopefully warmly welcoming us into the space that you've created. I know it's not that easy. I've been in this position, uh, your position myself. And um, it sometimes feels like an invasion. Um, But we want to practice too. So we're here. (laughs) Thank you for letting us come into the space with you. Um, This change over time is not easy. And it's a time when we can bring our practice to bear in the moments when we're not feeling so great about the kerfluffle that's happening. So, um, yeah, patience is one of the great qualities that we develop when we're in this uh, part of the retreat. So I'll just wait for everybody to get settled. Welcome them into. So for all of us who have just come into the retreat, I'd like to represent everyone by um, putting my hands together and bowing to all of you uh, in gratitude for holding, establishing this retreat space for us. Also gratitude to all of you just arriving for uh, your efforts to be here, for the countless things that you may have done in order to prepare for being here, which probably took months or even longer 
in order to get here. So we're grateful that everyone got here safely and that we can all be together and start, basically join the two energies together and start this retreat anew. Acknowledging the teachers who have just left, their skillfulness, their compassion, their wisdom for helping to uh, start this course for all of us. So they're, they're off safely to their own homes, very grateful that they have this opportunity. And also I'd like to express gratitude to my colleagues. Uh, We've worked with each other a lot through these many, many years, and it's a joy and it's an honor for all of us to work with each other. We have a lot of fun, and um, we each open up different wisdoms in each other, and we were different from one another, of course, but that also adds a quality of expansion to the wisdom that we may be able to offer you. So on my right is Guy Armstrong. He's one of the guiding teachers here at uh, IMS, and he's been associated with IMS for the past 30 years, I believe, in various um, roles, and even uh, from being a cook to various other roles. So Guy knows this place from like the inside out. And um, it's really good to have him as a friend, as a colleague, and um, a fellow teacher and a fellow yogi. Um, on my left is Steve Armstrong. They're, they're not blood-related, but um, certainly Dharma-related, Dharma brothers. And uh, uh, Steve has um, been associated with IMS also for about 30 years, being in the maintenance and department, also a cook, knowing this place inside out, and um, he adds a lot of humor to our being together here. He's the, um, he brings the most humor to this, the subject of suffering that I know of. Uh, we call him the king of dukkha. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> he didn't know I was going to say that. My cooking, you'll know it. <laughs> He said if you eat his cooking, it's a good thing he's not a cook anymore. So uh, it's great to, to work with Steve. And he has also just kind of retired as being one of the guiding teachers. And um, so we're, we're a good team together, all of us together. And to his left is Carol Wilson, who has just returned from some practice in Burma. So I'm surprised that she's um, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I think, this evening. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Carol also has been involved with IMS for the 30 years or so and um, is one of the teachers that I get a lot of understanding of the Dharma from, along with my other colleagues here. Um, it's really great to be able to work with someone who's funny but also kind of gets to the point of the Dharma really quickly. So I really appreciate what Carol has to bring to our team. 
Anything more, Carol? Oh, she's the only one who was a cook. Okay, getting educated. But I heard about those times you were in the kitchen. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then Sally Clough over on my far left. Sally's been with uh, teaching this retreat for the last couple, three years, and a wonderful part of our team working together. Um, she's also, along with Guy, been very much involved with Spirit Rock, um, knowing that part of the uh, that meditation center inside out, being part of er- almost every level of its organization. So uh, she brings a lot of her wisdom of the Dharma and also wisdom of just knowing retreat centers and uh, being a really good uh, friend and an excellent yogi. So we're uh, happy to all be here together serving you. Also, we have um, Virinyani here on the left. So, Virinyani, would you, can everybody see her? Maybe you can stand up since you're not up here. Yeah. Virinyani also just returned from Burma, practicing there, not from Burma, Malaysia, practicing there. And um, she's uh, in her. Uh, robes as a Theravada nun, in case some of you aren't familiar with that. Um, and um, she wanted, she'll be the night contact person. I think it was described where that room is, but uh, yeah, okay. So uh, Viranyani has been the night contact person at least two other times, right, for this three month course. So she knows the terrain very, very well. And uh, she's an excellent person to go to. We have a lot of confidence and faith in her. She works very closely with us. Her practice is also very, very strong. And so um, that's why she's chosen to be the night contact person. Um, it's important if, if you are a, a male and you uh, go in to see her that she'll keep the door open a little bit. This is part of her vows and so um, that that will happen during that time. So tonight, just to begin, I'd like to point out three qualities that will allow us to undertake this time of renunciation together, this time of silence together. The first quality is to surrender to the simplicity of this kind of format, this retreat. We try to keep it so, so simple so that we can pay attention closely to what's happening. Our lives are such that busyness has become the norm. And I know that uh, I, for example, and many of you probably feel that to slow down is a little bit odd, is a little bit difficult to do. And so we might be having a challenge doing that in the beginning So especially uh, for those of us who have just arrived, and I'm reminding ourselves as teachers too, see if we can slow down uh, very first thing in the retreat. That would make the people who have been here already very, very happy. I know most of the time it feels like people are going 90 miles an hour. I see some heads nodding. 
um, when the new people, when the second half people come in. So it would be a, a great relief and um, greatly appreciated if we'd slow down uh, right off the bat, if we can. Taking this time and space together um, is so precious. We're sometimes feel that it's kind of awkward because we're not achieving or we're not feeling like we're acquiring anything. And so, uh, you know, it's the very opposite in our practice. We're letting go. This kind of simplicity helps us to be present, to know what we're being present with, and to, to let go of anything that we may be keeping us from our highest aspirations. Sadly, our lives lead us away from seeing the world with quiet eyes. And this is one of the basic uh, benefits of our practice is to be able to see the world with quiet eyes, not with a kind of restlessness in our minds, in our hearts that affect what we see, but to see things more quietly. And in this way, we can bring that kind of deepening understanding back into the world and be a force in the world that is uh, really beneficial. There's um, there's a little phrase that says, simple in actions and thoughts, you return to the source of being. Simple in actions and thoughts, you return to the source of being. So instead of um, this human doing that we're always doing, we come to just being, really human being. Many wise men and women in the past and in the present time, and now including ourselves, have come to this kind of silence and seclusion in order to see the world with quiet eyes more deeply, to see within the world within ourselves, first and foremost, with quiet eyes and therefore to be able to see and to be in the world with that kind of stillness, that kind of stillness that's ready to act wisely and compassionately. So we have a very simple task here, and that is just to be simple, just to be present with whatever's happening. It sounds like an easy instruction but it's not that easy to carry out. And um, we'll have a lot of spaciousness and compassion for that also. Krishnamurti says, When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution, it is only then that the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates not our efforts to be free. So simplicity in this regard and very directly uh, points to the silence that we're all asked to keep, this noble silence. It is of the utmost importance that we uh, keep this noble silence. The noble silence in refraining from speaking and that includes refraining from reading uh, 
or writing, uh, journaling. That kind of silence helps us to silence the mind more. And there, it's possible that we have to write a little bit. We have to remember what was said in a Dharma talk, take notes in a Dharma talk, or we may have to take notes after a um, an interview or maybe when something happened in our um, sitting, we, we need to record. Well, that's that's fine. But be careful about the kind of writing that leads to a busy mind. And you'll know what that is. It's up to each one of you to discern what kind of writing that is. And as far as reading, just being present here with the simple instructions will get you a lot further than reading any Dharma book in your room. Um, If you just stay with the simplicity of the instructions, I assure you, we all assure you, that you'll go deeper in your practice. Sometimes reading uh, even Dharma books on the side can be confusing. There can be conflicting theories or uh, conflicting understandings that are given that are not um, in line with the progression of the instructions that we're giving here. So we ask you to put that aside and also, for the time being, to put aside any other teaching that you may be trying to compare this with or to fit this into the niche of another teaching. It really doesn't uh, help to do that. If you can just put everything aside for now and take this at its face value, apply it to your moment-to-moment experience in your sitting, walking, eating, all the in-between times, your practice will become much more potent and there will be much more clarity in what this is all about. Part of being uh, keeping the noble silence is not just in our words, what we write, refraining from speaking, or what we read, but it's also with our eyes and our body. There's a um, there's an instruction that we're often given, and if we can take it sincerely, we may understand the uh, importance, the long-term importance of silencing the mind, if we guard our sense doors, if we guard our eyes from going here and there, if we guard our body from uh, going here and there, we become less restless in the mind, and our mind gets stiller much more quickly. So, Take that to heart and see how you can apply that to your practice. There have been times in my own practice where I'm in a new place and I want to look around, especially, you know, what's that way over there? What what would that walk be like? You know, and I end up being miles away from where I started from. And uh, I come back only feeling uh, more restless and not really with the program, so to speak. So see how that is for you, how guarding your sense doors can really help to deepen your practice. We're not going to be the Dharma police around here, but um, we're just giving you some guidelines which you may be able to take in for yourselves to see 
how it would help your practice, how it would benefit you. So guarding our sense doors can quiet the mind. And in quieting the mind, we, the mind becomes more bright, more clear, more able to see things as they really are. Steve uh, reminded me that Mahasi Sayadaw, one of our teachers, um, one of our teacher's teachers, has said to cut any impediments to your aspiration to be here and to be sincere. So what would that be for you? Cutting any impediments to your aspiration to be here, to be sincere in your practice. So the the schedule, just to weave that in, um, you've all seen, all, those of you have, who are new have seen the schedule. The 8.15 sitting is an important one to be at because that's a sitting that will give the instructions for the day. Uh, they will be graduated instructions so that the instructions one day will be based upon the previous day. So it's really important not to miss that sitting. And um, if you have to uh, miss that sitting, you might get caught up with your teacher on what was handed out for that day. It's also at that 8.15 uh, sitting that we give out any announcements. So for all of us to be on the same page, we give out the announcements on that uh, at that sitting. So that would be important. Anything that you need to know about regarding the container of the retreat. The 7.30 uh, Dharma talk is also an important one to be at when you can because we try to arrange the talks in such a way that your your Dharma understanding is expanded and uh, that talk would be built upon a previous talk. So it's helpful um, if you can be here for that talk. So the interviews are on every second or third day, and they'll be posted on the bulletin board. Um, We will give instructions in the hall that will be more uh, general or generic instructions, and those instructions will be refined for you individually uh, during your individual check-in with the teachers that you have been um, assigned to. So the second quality is patience uh, that we're going to try to weave into our practice here and remind ourselves of during the time we're here. It's said that patience paves the way to freedom. So um, there's a, I'm remembering a sign on my girlfriend's refrigerator that says, infinite patience produces immediate results. So Remember that just patience in the moment, you'll, you'll really feel the benefit of it. There's nowhere to go internally or externally. So watch the times when you're kind of leaning into the future and see if you can have patience with yourself, patience with others around, especially during this time when we're these two kind of streams are coming together. There's a little kerfluffle in the beginning. 
The third quality is compassion. So this compassion which we will continually weave in in various ways and words is a kind of spacious gentleness that we want to uh, generate for ourselves especially and, and then for others too, of course, a kind of way that we can be uh, big-minded, big-hearted about how things are and uh, be compassionate when when others are suffering it it usually doesn't feel good to us as well and it may be um, sort of acted out in various ways that we may interpret as annoying to us and so just being compassionate towards that annoyance in ourselves towards the suffering in others uh, and so having this spacious compassionate softness towards our practice, towards other people's practice too. So these are the three qualities that I wanted to point out, um, especially at the beginning of our time together, simplicity, patience, and spacious compassion. So we all wish you well uh, during this time together and um, Please uh, help us to help you be the best, uh, do the best practice you can. So I'd like to hand it over to um, who's to Steve, who's going to talk about the refuges now. Oh, I also want to um, express my um, gratitude and appreciation for having this opportunity to share the Dharma and to share our practice uh, space together with all of you. Uh, it's always a, uh, a joy and a challenge to spend, well, in this case, five weeks with anybody, but... Uh, when we're practicing, well, it's a beneficial challenge. So uh, I look forward to uh, this time with all of us. One way that we all get on the same page, so to speak, coming from the individual streams of our life when we come to a retreat like this is to take the refuges and precepts uh, together. And it's a tradition in this uh, practice here in the West, and it's a, it's a practice uh, in the Theravada tradition or in the Buddhist tradition at large throughout the world. And I remember when I first went to the monast- practice in the monastery in Burma that after 10 years of practicing here in the West, I really didn't have a practice of taking refuge. Um, I'd heard about taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, but it really wasn't 
I didn't spend any time with it. It wasn't, uh, it was just kind of like a, a ritual and a, kind of a mumble jumble and something that you did occasionally. But when I went to Burma in the monastery where I was practicing, every morning before breakfast from 4.30 to 5.30 there was a sitting. And towards the end of that sitting, the Burmese would always chant the refuges, the precepts, and a little bit of metta or loving kindness. And I was staying, practicing in the foreigner's meditation hall, which was down the hill a little bit from the dining room. And at about four, about 5.20, one of the women's meditation hall would start chanting the refuges and precepts. And this was the women's meditation hall up by the dining room, which could see twelve or 1,500 people. And so there'd be twelve or 1,500 women start chanting. And Burmese women are very devout and very sincere and very energetic, and they have a tremendous amount of faith in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. So when they chant refuges and precepts, it's hair-raising. It just really kind of like wakens some part of you that uh, you kind of forgot existed. And they'd be chanting, and then they'd be, you know, 10 or 15, 20 seconds into it, and there'd be another women's meditation hall uh, follow-up. And there was a double, two-story meditation hall in the lower floor or the upper floor of 500 would begin, and they'd be into their chanting, and then the other floor would begin their chanting. So they were all a little out of sync, but they're all chanting the same thing, and now we've got a couple of thousand chanting. And then there was the men's and the monks' hall, which would hold 1,500, and they'd start chanting, and there was another monk's hall that would chant. So sometimes there'd be two, three, four thousand very sincere, tremendously inspired uh, practitioners like yourself practicing taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha. And it was a new, it was a novel experience for me when I first heard it. And over the course of many mornings hearing this, what I came to realize is that we're all here doing the same thing. This is a universal practice. It's a timeless practice. Awakening is no different for me than for you, for those women or men or monks in Burma or anyone since the time of the Buddha who has taken refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, it's the same for us. And in a way, for us to take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and Sangha is to recognize the commonality of our aspiration and to acknowledge our intention, to acknowledge our willingness to to seek a refuge or to seek uh, safety in the teachings of the Buddha, in the practice of the Buddha, and even among each other. So it's a practice or it's a it's a it's an activity that we'll undertake each day at the beginning of the Dharma talk. We'll come and take the refuges and precepts. But more than just a kind of habit or a ritual, meaningless ritual, or just a mumble-jumble that doesn't have any particular meaning or value or significance to you. I'd like to speak just briefly 
about the refuges so that you can make it a practice that supports your being here. So what does it mean? We say Budang Saranang Gachami, Damang Saranang Gachami, Sanghang Saranang Gachami. Well, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, we understand to a degree, and we'll understand more as we go along. But Saranang and Gachami, Saranang means uh, a refuge, a place of safety, something or some place to rely on, a place that we can feel at ease. And if we just look at the conditions of our own life, there's a lot of space in our life, both physical space, psychic space, emotional space, where we don't feel safe, where we don't feel at ease, where we don't feel protected. And so when we take the refuge and we say, Saran, Budang Saranang Gachami, Gachami means to go to or to seek, to move from the status quo towards something that we aspire to. So while we may not feel that our life in all the activities or the behaviors or the things that we do in our life are coming from or offer a place of refuge for our heart, it's something that we're moving towards. It's something that we're aspiring to. And so it takes practice to do that to move our mind from its deeply conditioned habits of suffering and the causes of suffering and turmoil and distress of one sort or another and to move towards a capacity to feel safe, to feel at ease, to feel like the conditions of our life are a place of refuge. That takes practice. And practice is, as many of you know, involves a lot of repetition. I once had a teacher say, you really need to develop the spirit of repetition so that we do something over and over and over again, not out of rote, mindless repetition. You can chant the refuges like that, and it will be absolutely meaningless to you. But if we bring a sincere intention and energy and awareness to what we're doing, then it can inspire you to really deeply understand what it means to take the Buddha as a refuge, or take refuge in the Buddha, to take refuge in the Dharma, to take refuge in the Sangha. So when we say, I go to the refuge, I go to the Buddha for refuge, or I take refuge in the Buddha, what is the Buddha? Well, the Buddha was a historical human being that lived about 2,500 years ago. And it's important to understand or to, to reflect on this, that the Buddha was a human being, like you, like me. And so he was mortal. He had, you know, he had parents and he was born and he kind of, grew up and went through those teenage years, which are a challenge in themselves, and did all those things that you need to do to kind of become an adult. And in time, the Buddha died. The, the body that was born became the Buddha. That, that, 
the body died. And so the conditions that we experience being a human being, the Buddha experienced. And the Buddha was able to use those experiences to awaken, to find the key to unshakable happiness. It's important to reflect on that because often we think, consciously or unconsciously, we just have a kind of an assumption that the conditions of my life are an impediment to my happiness. That's not true. No matter what the conditions of your life are or have been or will be, they can be used to develop the understanding of freedom and unshakable happiness, no matter what those experiences are. And sometimes we forget that. You know, we get entangled in our stress, our distress, our suffering, our trauma, our abuse, our, you know, knee pain, and whatever. And somehow it just appears in our mind as like, oh, God, I've got to get rid of it. I've got I to gotta fix it. I've got I to gotta get a new family of origin. I've got to get a new <laughs> something, you know, to, to, to be able to be happy. Not so. And it's in those times when we're struggling with ourself in some form, personal history or body or mind, whatever, that we remember. The Buddha went through this too. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha as a historical being, we, we take refuge in, you know what, whatever I'm going through, somebody else has gone through and, and have, has, has gone through it. And so we recall, we reflect, we, we again remind ourselves, take refuge in the Buddha. It also points to, in taking refuge in the Buddha, reminds us that we do have the potential to awaken, each one of us. We, any one of us can be awake in any moment, and we are. That's what we're practicing, just being aware that we're breathing in, we're breathing out, we're sitting, we're listening, we're, we're suffering, we're happy, we're hungry, we're sleepy, we're not. That's being awake. That's what the Buddha was, awake. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha, we, take ref- we are taking refuge in the potential to awaken. We may not yet be fully awake. In fact, we'll discover that soon enough. Nevertheless, we have the potential to awaken in any moment. And so when you find yourself struggling with your dullness and your sleepiness and your non-wakefulness, to recall once again, take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the potential to awaken. I may not yet be awakened, but I know it's possible. And so we remind ourselves. We, we recollect the possibility, the potential within ourselves, no matter how deeply conditioned the habit of unwakefulness is, or dullness, sleepiness, delusion, we can awaken. And by actively practicing consciously and with full full awareness, 
the taking of the refuge in the Buddha, we remind ourselves, we support ourselves in making the effort to be awake. When we take refuge in the Dharma, Dharma in Sanskrit, Dhamma in Pali, the language that the Buddha's words are recorded in. Again, the, the, the Dharma has a few meanings that's helpful to remember, to reflect on. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. In the big word, in the big sense of it. They're the actual words of the Buddha as recorded, handed down, taught to us, that we then practice from. The Dharma is also the commentaries and the practical applications that have been developed over 2,500 years of the Buddha's teachings. We try to represent the teachings of the Buddha as accurately as we have heard them, studied them, practiced them, and realized them. And so in some ways we are sharing with you both the direct words of the Buddha, the Dharma, and cultural adaptation of the Buddha's teaching. It's said that the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught the Dharma. And the Dharma, a second meaning of the word the Dharma is the truth. It's the way things are. It's just the way it is right now for you. We've all come together to practice here for this period of time. And we've all come, we've all had to, you know, make the decision and gather the resources and make the commitment and get others to take care of responsibilities at home, at work. And it, it hasn't been easy for any of us to kind of marshal the energy to get here, to be here, and to be able to be here in a way that is useful. And behind the scenes, as Kamala mentioned, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of other people that are supporting us doing this. So many, in fact, that we don't know all the support we're getting to be able to do this. But because the causes and the conditions have come together, here we are. <coughs> there isn't any one of us in this room that is making it happen. I'm not making it happen. The manager at IMS isn't making it happen. You aren't making it happen. But all the conditions and all the causes that we have put in motion is allowing this to happen. That's the way it is. That's the Dharma. And so the momentum of our time here and our practice here and your individual experience here is the Dharma. That's the way it is. If you have a difficult time and struggle, that's just the way it is. If you have an easy time and a lot of bliss and joy, well, that's just the way it is. If you like the Dharma talks, well, that's the way it is. If you don't like the Dharma talk, well, that's just the way it is. That's the way it is for you. That's the way it is for us. That's, it's, we're not making it happen that way. It just is happening that way. 
when we understand that, we don't have to struggle with our individual experience because we understand it's so much greater than our intention or whether I'm succeeding or failing or doing it right or doing it wrong. If you're here, you're doing it right. You may not like the way it is. Well, that's practice. That takes practice. Learning to be at ease with the way things are. That's why we take refuge in the Dharma. Learning how or aspiring to be able to consider this moment's experience as a place of refuge. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're aspiring to find a place of refuge in this experience right now. Well, right now might be okay. You know, opening day, and we haven't gotten too far in there for some of us, and we haven't discovered the challenges of our bodies, our minds, our emotions, or maybe you have. But there will be plenty of experiences throughout your practice here in the coming days or weeks that you may wish was not the way things are. Well, that's when you want to remember taking refuge. Taking re- I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in, you know, this is not an accident. What we're experiencing right now is not an accident. What you'll experience at any time during this, your life is not a mistake. It's not an accident. You're not being victimized by it. It's just the way it is. Can we make those adjustments in our heart that can, can find a place of refuge right there? So, until we can, we're aspiring to take refuge in the Dharma. And that takes practice. Taking refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha is what? the community. This group of, what, 80 or 90 yogis, 5 or 6 teachers and helpers, 30 or 40 staff, a lot of people outside, Hundreds of people. We're, we're a sangha. We're a group of like-minded aspirants to the awakened life. And so we can practice together. We can take refuge in one another. We can be supported by the, the sincerity, the intention, the diligence, the care with which we do our practice. And in that way, we can take refuge in one another. But the sangha has a Another meaning which is important also to remember that these teachings of the Buddha have come to us over the last 25 centuries by men and women like ourselves who have heard them, practiced them, realized them to a degree, and shared them. We owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to the millions of men and women, monks and nuns, who have paved the way for us, really, and and brought these teachings into the 21st century for us to have the advantage to hear them, the opportunity to hear them, the opportunity to practice them, and to see for ourselves. At this monastery where I was practicing in, in Burma at the end of the 
morning sitting when the chanting was finished, there would be the call to breakfast. The breakfast was in the dining room up at the top of the hill. And every year there was a festival where the elders of this tradition would come together, about 400 elder monks and another 100 or so elder nuns that are carrying this tradition in the 20th and 21st century in Burma. And they would meet and every year for four or five days in December. And when it was time for breakfast, you'd hear the gong, the wooden clacker, I guess you'd call it, or gong at the kitchen. And then one of the monks who ran the meditation center would step out into the pathway and he would say, 65 wasa, meaning any monk who'd been a monk for 65 years could go to breakfast. And one elderly 85-year-old would come tottering out of the shadows and kind of start up the path to the dining room. And he'd say, 64 wasa. And any monk who'd been 64 years, he'd get in the line and follow. And, and he'd go down the line, 63, 62, and he'd get down to 30 wasa, a monk who was 50 years old, and there'd be dozens at a time stepping out on the path, going to lunch. And when they got down to one wasa or two wasas, I would go. And when I would step out into the line, <laughs> of course, I was the last one, and I'd look ahead of me, and I'd see this long line of monks. The nuns were lining up at another dining room over here. I'd see this long line of monks snaking up the hill into the mist around the corner going into the dining room. And I have this feeling, I remember this when I first had it, that somewhere at the head of the line, just out of sight around the corner, was the Buddha who realized the truth, shared it with another and said, Do you, can you see things this way? Can you see things? Can you see what I see? And that teaching has been handed down from monk to monk to monk or nun to nun to nun, lay person, whatever, for 2,500 years, down that long line of monks coming to me. And I used to think that I was the last person in the line. And I'm not. Because during this retreat, I'm going to be asking you, can you see things this way? Can you see the way to free your heart from suffering and the causes of suffering? Because to the extent that you do, you can share it with another generation of beings who want to know, who want to see clearly, who want to be free. We are the Sangha from the time of the Buddha for 2,500 years, and it doesn't stop here. There are untold, unborn beings waiting to hear what you know. So when you take refuge in the Sangha, there are many who will be taking refuge in you. And what you hear, how you practice, and what you realize and share with them. So each evening we'll take the refuges. And please remember throughout the day that it's not just a meaningless ritual, but it's, it's a practice. It's an acknowledgement of our aspiration, our commonality, possibility of awakening to the truth. Another tradition in, in this practice is to take the refuges together and
Carol will speak briefly about taking the refuges or taking the precepts together. No, no, you can go over. Tonight, exception, you can talk more. So when we speak about freedom of heart or mind, realizing the truth, the different ways we talk about it, one of the mm, ways of speaking of a free heart and mind is uh, a purity of heart, purity of mind. Not always the most attractive, evocative word in the English language, but really what we mean by a heart or a mind that's pure is in any one moment, you don't have to think about it for your whole life, but in any one moment when the mind, the heart is awake and present and in that moment free from the torments, the confusions of greed, of clinging, of aversion, of hatred, and of delusion, of confusion. That's a pure heart and mind. And only such a mind at such a time has the capacity to discern the truth. In some ways, the definition of freedom, of peace, of happiness, is a heart and mind that is, at least momentarily, freed from these torments, from these kilesa. And so that's really the work, you could say, of our whole spiritual practice. Not only meditation, but the whole way that we live our life, all of it comes together. Everything we do in every aspect of our life, if we're really serious about our liberation, if we're really serious about this path of freedom, There's nothing in our life that isn't a component of cultivating awakening that is outside of the scope. And so while, of course, here, as we've come together in this really beautiful gathering, in this place of support, hopefully of safety, to the function we're doing together ostensibly is the mental cultivation of meditation. So that's the particular activity we're engaging in, and that's mostly, of course, what we'll all be talking about. But just as Steve said, in taking the refuges together, it's an active practice, not a formal kind of ritual. It's a really active practice of commitment. So, too, when we... uh, formally undertake the precepts or guidelines of non-harming behavior, that's only an outer reminder of the importance of how we live our life, of how we speak and act in the world, not just to, you know, not just, I mean, not only in order not to cause harm to others. I mean, that's big. That's good. We don't want to cause harm to others. But it's really as well, and in many ways you could say primarily in terms of the way the Buddha taught, 
Everything he taught is a path of awakening. Nothing's extraneous to that. And so when we um, talk about or make a commitment to undertake these guidelines of training, of speech and action, not to harm others, not to harm ourselves. It's not like just kind of like a preparation, let's kind of clear the decks so we can meditate easier. <laughs> That's kind of, in some way, the way my Western mind works. Okay, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll have some morality, some silas, some conscious conduct. And it's good and all. We don't want to hurt people, but really it's so I can meditate better, you know, because that's really where it's at. But I think if I could really live by even only the five precepts, really consciously, committedly, day in and day out, refer to those guidelines internally and pretty purely live from that, the effect would be to purify and liberate my mind and heart from clinging, from aversion, from delusion. They're an absolutely intrinsic and powerful practice of purity, of metta, generosity, of freedom. And so I just, you know, like to offer that so we go as we undertake the precepts, really taking them say seriously but really gratefully with real respect with real appreciation for the power of paying attention to what we say and do and why, really, we're saying it and doing it. That's the power of the practice of uh, conscious conduct. Stephen Batchelor wrote once, an ethical life is a practice that provides protection against the urges of a deluded or confused mind while also facilitating the healing of that mind. It's kind of like a two-pronged uh, something. <laughs> two prongs, two, two aspects of the practice. Because I don't know if you've noticed, I certainly hope you've noticed, how completely tricky and unreliable our mind can be. It can come up, at least mine can, I don't think I'm alone in this, but it can come up with a really believable rationalization for why I should say or do anything that greed or confusion or aversion has decided I need to say or do. And so if I'm not really uh, committed to paying attention honestly to why, what's motivating internally this speech or action I'm about to do, if I'm so lucky as to notice ahead of time that I'm actually going to say and do something before I've already done it, when if I'm not really honestly willing to look at that, the mind can come up with the most convincing rationalization. And usually it can be so good that I can convince other people that that's really why I said or did it. And so that might get you off the external hook. But the trick with freedom is it doesn't matter if you can convince the whole world because freedom has nothing to do with what anybody else thinks about you. Now that's actually really great, isn't it? 
So you can just quit worrying about what everyone else here is thinking about you because it doesn't make any difference. It almost even doesn't make any difference what you think about yourself. But (laughs) that's also a relief. (laughs) But what does make a difference is honestly, with mindfulness, with the willingness to be honest, noticing what's true about my motivation for speech, my motivation for action. And this is where the precepts are an amazingly helpful and supportive guideline. I'm I'm assuming that all of you are familiar with the five basic precepts. I mean, I'll say what they are, and as well as the eight, if you choose. I'll talk about that, too. But to realize that as precepts, they're guidelines for conscious behavior, something to refer to, especially when our mind is getting up to its, its tricks of rationalization, and it's a really good reason why I need to take this thing, even though I know it belongs to somebody else, but they probably won't care. And if I did ask them, they'd say yes, and so I might as well go ahead and take it now. And, and when there's the precept of not to take what's not freely offered, you don't have to sit and stew and go through that rationalization and how to do it and how to make it. You just look at it and go, okay, drop it. Let go. And in that letting go is freedom. It's not suffering. The suffering is that back and forth, and how can I make it work, and how can I get what I want? And you come up against that guideline, oh, okay, just let it go. There's the possibility for that moment of purity where the greed just vanishes for that moment from the mind. And so that's how... Precepts are a reference point to help us tune into our own motivation out of our own conscious choice for happiness and liberation. They're absolutely not meant as some external authority that we either grudgingly or resentfully feel that we have to abide by in order to get some goodies somewhere down the line or at least not to have people hate us. They're not about external authority at all, but about a willing commitment to a path that frees our heart and mind from suffering and that has the wonderful side effect of giving others around us the gift of fearlessness. It has the wonderful side effect of creating a real zone of safety, a real meta field, you know, into which other people, without even sometimes knowing it, when they enter, they feel safe. Often you actually see in meditation centers here in Asia or retreat centers where people practice a lot, there's times when you notice the, a little bit, I don't want to get too out there with this, but a little bit, where sometimes the wild animals, the birds, the chipmunks, you can see that they, the deer at Spirit Rock, they, you can see that they somehow know it's safer. They don't have the same fear of people. You can see that they just move in and out much closer to people than ordinary wild animals. It's kind of that, that zone of uh, fearlessness. And then the other side, the gift it gives us, the protection abiding by conscious contact gives us is what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. 
not having to stew in remorse about our actions that were unskillful. I'll read this from the Dhammapada. This is a rendering, not an exact translation, by Ajahn Meninda. Let me get his name right. He's one of the uh, Meninda, right? He's one of the uh, monks from the Amravati Sangha. Here and hereafter, those who perform unskillful acts create their own suffering. Mental preoccupation with the thought, I have done wrong, possesses their minds and they fall into chaos. Here and hereafter, those who live their lives well abide in happiness. They are filled with a natural appreciation of virtue and they dwell in delight. And it's really true. Just the delight, the happiness of a mind and heart that's at peace. So to be able to be willing to honestly notice why we're doing what we're doing, to even notice we're about to do something before we do it, basically requires mindfulness. That simplicity of non-judging, clear-eyed attention. And so the uh, commitment to uh, conscious conduct, to paying attention to our actions, to the precepts, actually strengthens both the purity of heart and mind, but also strengthens our mindfulness. Can't do it without mindfulness. We don't even know what we're doing without mindfulness. And so it becomes a a really important part of the practice. And as Stephen Batchelor says, it facilitates the healing of the mind. And in just those times when we're hanging on by a thread to some kind of non-harming behavior, just having those guidelines to remind us can really, really help. Other times, it can seem irrelevant because when we're really present, when the mind and heart is awake and in balance, the, the torments, the kalesas, they just don't really have a hold. Then you don't need to refer to any guidelines because in the moment when the heart and mind is free from torments, the, the, the idea of doing something harmful just doesn't even arise. As one of our teachers, Saida Upandita, would say that the the uh, observing the precepts, acting in the conscious, non-harming way, act, actualizes the oneness, the understanding of the oneness of ourself and others. So, when we're, you know, we see there's some insect and we're about to bang it away, we just stop. It's also a living being. In that moment, strongly or weakly. We're actually experiencing in ourselves the oneness of life. You don't have to have a big neon sign going off, you know, now I'm experiencing the oneness of life. But in that moment, you know, we appreciated it. When So that's the first precept. Just mention what they are. I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. And as you'll see, as we pay attention in our whole lifetime to these guidelines, they all have amazing levels of subtlety. 
So to be able to absolutely 100% abide by these, where do you draw the line? That's a really difficult uh, and subtle question. One which no one can answer for you. It goes up to the point of, I know people who won't take antibiotics because that's destroying bacteria. Where, where do you draw the line? And that may change at times and over life, but it highlights our sensitivity to life, and that's what's beautiful. Or the second one, I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. On one level, that can feel a, a kind of renunciation of not taking something we don't want. It can seem at times like a suffering, and it can move through to a huge sense of generosity, of giving, of offering, of dana. What is not given? There's so much we could see on the planet that's not freely given that we could not use. And again, that's very personal. The third precept on a retreat is, I undertake the precept to refrain from any kind of intentional sexual behavior. In daily life, of course, that's not to engage in sexual misconduct. So in daily life, that's not to engage in any sexuality that causes harm to others or harm to ourselves. And so much harm can come from sexual misuse of our sexual energy. On retreat, it's celibacy. And that's really, I feel it's more in the lines of uh, the noble silence in one way, really keeping our energy to ourselves and in terms also of renunciation, of using that energy for exploration, for mindfulness. The fourth, a precept to refrain from incorrect speech. How much harm and pain comes about in this world from lying, false speech, from harsh speech, from divisive speech, you know? Two people getting together and talking about a third in a not very nice way. And the fourth aspect of wrong speech is just the word in Pali. We love it, sampapalapa, which is sort of what it sounds like. Yada, yada, blah, 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 blah. And People Magazine, and, and, and what did Tom Cruise do now? And it's like, that's just such a lot of waste of time. <laughs> and so just to take that energy and put it back into seeing what's happening here and now. I mean... It's a lot more important than Tom Cruise's baby. I just, I was away and I came back. I was like, I cannot bear, I cannot bear if I see another picture of that guy in my life. <laughs> you can't go to the supermarket. You can't go anywhere. Okay, that's a little side. Um, <laughs> that was incorrect speech. That was an example. <laughs> and the fifth is to undertake the, to undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating liquors and drugs which lead to carelessness which seems pretty obvious since we're here to cultivate wakefulness, heedfulness, and care. This does not include any medication that you're taking for any physical or mental or emotional condition. We're talking basically here recreational drugs and alcohol that lead to confusion. These are the five main precepts that we ask everyone to undertake Of course, as a community agreement, it sets the tone of safety and um, fearlessness for all of us. So that's the external reason, the real internal reasons are what I've just described. There are also three other precepts, undertaking the eight precepts, 
which is a choice one may make. It is not at all necessary or essential for your practice. But it's often uh, in the tradition that we've all practiced in, in Asia, it's, it's in monasteries. It's often, in fact, usually, when you go to a monastery or a meditation center in Asia, it's assumed that you're undertaking eight precepts. We include it here as an option if you're interested, but let me just say a couple things about it. The, 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 the last three, six, seven, eight, are meant to be undertaken if you choose as a support to make your practice easier. They're not meant to cause angst and anguish. They're not meant to take over, you know, as becoming the most important thing your mind's thinking about. They're really meant to just kind of clear the decks, a kind of a further refinement of renunciation. So for some people, it really works that way. The sixth one, undertake the precept to refrain from eating at the wrong times, means basically not eating solid food afternoon. And in all monasteries and nunneries in Asia, that's just how it is. And if that works in your system, what it does is just clear the day. You just don't think about food anymore. Or you may think about it, but you don't eat it. And you don't go to the dining room, and you just don't have to deal with that whole minor hell realm of the mass of hungry beings in the dining room, you know, looking at the rice cake and peanut butter and wishing it was something else. You just can skip that whole little episode. And if that works in your system, it actually gets quite nice. The body gets light and it's fine. Many, many people it doesn't work very well for. In fact, I just, where I just came from in Burma, one of the guys, they were grousing at me every day. I've already lost six kilos and I've only been here six weeks. And you know who I mean, right? I said, you seem a little peeved, you know. <laughs> so that's not so supportive. And it's, it's not necessary for practice. So if you're agonizing about it, forget it. You know, only do if it helps. This, the other two, uh, undertake the precept to refrain from entertainment, beautification, and adornment. Again, it's just to make things more simple. Entertainment, well, you don't have much chance for that here. Beautification and adornment. You could, you know, you could spend, I don't know, brushing your hair, fixing, should I grow a beard, should I shave my beard, should I have a mustache, you know, you can get all into all that. Earrings, what you wear. I mean, it's pretty mild here, but just if you undertake that precept, you'd forget about wearing jewelry, you just wouldn't uh, wear makeup, you wouldn't, I don't know. You guys, you wouldn't wax your mustache, I don't know what. <laughs> you just wouldn't spend a lot of time. Looking in the mirror. Um, And the eight one, I undertake the precept to refrain from lying on a higher luxurious sleeping place. That's also not so much an option here. But what it really means is you're just kind of giving up that hunkering down in bed and really having a good old lion, you know, for half the day with your teddy bear. It means, you know, when the bell rings, you get up. And if you're tired and you take a nap, fine. A nap, you know, not a, like a three-hour, you know. It just means you just give up that extra sloth and torporing. That's all. So those are the last three, and it's totally up to you. If you don't want to try them now and you want to try them later, 
that's fine. Obviously, the main one is the sixth one of night eating after noon. And if you decide to do it later, you need to let the kitchen know. If you want to try it now and try for a week or two and then just go back to the five, that's also fine. It's really not a big deal. It's to see what most supports your ease of practice, the ease of the mind that can let go, that can just be here to practice. That's what's important, and that's individual for each of us. So if you start with eight now and in a week or two you want to go to five, that's fine. Again, you just adjust it with the kitchen, okay? So then we like to take the refugees and the precepts as a way of formally beginning the retreat. So those of you who have been here know the chanting of the Refugees and Precepts in Pali, and those of you who just arrived. um, So this evening I will chant one line or phrase in Pali, and you can repeat after me. And then in future evenings, how's it been done? You just chant them on your own? You don't, not a call and response? What do we do? Oh, yeah, but tonight, should we just... uh, call and response tonight and uh, before the Dharma talks and other evenings it'll be in unison so please repeat after me Namo Namo Tassa Bhagavato Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Samma Sambodasa Namo, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Samma Sambodasa, Samma Sambodasa, Namo, Namo, Tassa Bhagavato, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Samma Sambodasa, Samma Sambuddhasa Udang Sarananga Chami Udang Sarananga Chami Damang Sarananga Chami Damang Sarananga Chami Sanghang Sarananga Chami Sanghang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Budang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Budang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sanghang Sarananga Chami Dutiampi Sanghang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Budang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Budang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Damang Sarananga Chami Tatiampi Sanghang Sarananga Chami 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.